Welcome to the Project Censored Show on Pacifica Radio. I'm your host, Mickey Huff. In the first part of today's program, independent journalist Kevin Gostola of Shadowproof.com joins us to discuss the importance of whistleblowers for journalists and why they need to be protected, not prosecuted. We'll particularly discuss the cases of Julian Assange as well as Daniel Hale, who was recently sentenced to 45 months in prison for revealing alarming numbers of innocent civilian casualties from drone strikes abroad. Later in the show, former congressional candidate Shahid Bakar joins us. Also, Gloria Berry, member of the San Francisco Democratic County Central Committee, will discuss fallout from Bakar's historic run against House Speaker Nancy Pelosi, including what they claim have been false or misleading accusations and orchestrated attacks against Bakar by activists, including some of his former supporters, and the Democratic Party machine. They have more to do with his progressive politics than alleged personal matters. We'll also continue the discussion on the importance of whistleblowers coming forward not only in his case, but its importance nationally. Again, focusing on the recent case of Daniel Hale. Stay with us. Welcome to the Project Censored Show on Pacifica Radio. I'm your host, Mickey Huff. In this segment of today's program, we're going to look at all things whistleblowing. We are joined again by journalist Kevin Gostola. He is the managing editor of Shadowproof. He also produces and co-hosts the weekly podcast Unauthorized Disclosure, and he curates the Dissenter newsletter. You can learn more about Kevin's work at shadowproof.com. And there's a lot going on in the news right now about whistleblowers. A couple of weeks ago it was National Whistleblowers Day. There is such a thing in the U.S. And Kevin Gostola is one of the journalists that's been covering whistleblowing cases, huge high-profile cases the last decade. He's probably been covering them more in-depth, more extensively than most people that we know at Project Censored. So Kevin Gostola, it's always great to have you on the Project Censored show. Welcome back. Thanks for the introduction. So let's just start in the present so many things happening right now. Let's start with one of the big ones, Julian Assange in the UK, the extradition case, still being punished and held in prison. Can you give our listeners a brief update on what you know about what's happening with the Assange case right now? We are deep into the punishment by process. And I don't know how many cases your listeners are familiar with, but you could see this happening with another person who is on house arrest in New York, Steve Donziger, who's the target of Chevron. He was the attorney that represented people in Ecuador who had their lands poisoned by Texaco. And he's been on house arrest for two years fighting a bogus case. And then you look at Julian's case, Julian Assange's case, and you see how the extradition process in the UK courts is being abused and manipulated by the U.S. government in order to keep this publisher in a state of legal limbo. And right now what they're doing is they have several grounds of appeal. 
But the most recent development is in this hearing that took place on August 11th, the judge in the High Court of Justice, this appeals court, basically reversed course and allowed the U.S. government to appeal on all the grounds which they requested. It had been only three of the five, but they convinced the court that they should be able to challenge a neuropsychiatrist who treated Julian Assange from May 2019 to December 2019, who had determined that if Julian Assange went to commit suicide, he wouldn't be doing it to avoid extradition. He wouldn't be sitting in his cell in Belmarsh Prison in the United Kingdom and say, well, I'm not going to go to the United States. I'm going to kill myself tomorrow. It would be because of impulses that he cannot control as a result of his mental health disorder that we would find him tragically dead. So they're trying to disqualify this doctor and do so by claiming that he misled the court when he refused to disclose in his first report that Stella Morris and Julian Assange were partners and that he had fathered two children in the Ecuador embassy. And uh, that has no bearing. In fact, the judge, the district judge, when she did her decision, when she gave it, she analyzed all the information and said, that really doesn't have any bearing on his analysis of his medical health. So I'm going to say that while he misled the court, he didn't disclose its information. It doesn't matter. I'm still going to conclude it would be oppressive for mental health reasons or for health reasons to extradite him to the United States. The U.S. is challenging that he's at risk of suicide, directly challenging two doctors and their opinions, and basically saying that the district court relied too much on the defense's doctors, and we wish they would have paid more attention and given more weight to the prosecution's doctors, which we got to say what we wanted so we could clear the bar necessary to get Julian Assange to the United States and put him on trial in a case that threatens global press freedom. So that's where we're at. We are deep into punishment by process. And the whole process has been punishing. This is layer upon layer, Kevin Gostola, and you've been covering it stem to stern, going all the way back to Chelsea Manning's case. Let's shift gears momentarily just because there's just no shortage of stories. There's no shortage of attacks on whistleblowers. And, I mean, it's escalated. The Obama presidency, as you well know, saw more persecution and prosecution of whistleblowers than any presidency combined. And that trajectory seems to have continued through Trump. Now, Biden, who was VP under Obama, can you tell us a little bit about another case, the reality winner case? Can you give us a brief update on that case? This one's more of a positive update, although uh, she still is continuing her sentence. And very sadly, President Joe Biden has not responded to the requests from people I understand who are actually in some establishment liberals who have. Michael Cohen actually took an interest in the reality winner case and was trying to get her a pardon or trying to campaign. So there are people who were anti-Trumpers who took up her case, have been trying to lobby the Biden White House, and they've been able to get nowhere. She's serving the rest of her sentence on home confinement in Texas, finally free from prison, 
She survived one of the worst COVID-19 outbreaks that occurred in prisons last year. That's something I'm certain many of your listeners do not know, but there were over 500 to 600 people at one point in the Federal Medical Center Carswell who had tested positive. So she was in a little hot zone and now fortunately out of prison, but it's going to take quite a bit to rebuild her life. And CIA whistleblower John Kiriakou will tell you that when he was on home confinement, to him, it was somewhat worse than being in prison because there are restrictions that are imposed on you. You can't leave. You're supposed to seek employment, but they get to decide what job you get to do. They can reject it if you pick the wrong place. So if you want to do anything on progressive issues, they can say, well, no, we'd like you to go get a job at Subway. The fallout of these cases, even if people are aware of them as a blip when they're happening, there's not a lot of follow-up on what happens to people during or after these tragic situations. Whistleblowers, and I mentioned at the outset, it was National Whistleblowers Day at the end of July. And the history of that is pretty fascinating. Whistleblower.org, Government Accountability Project, our listeners can go and learn some more about the history of those, going all the way back to uh, the 1770s, actually, the significance of, of protecting whistleblowers. But a lot of that seems to be lip service, Kevin Gostola, because let's get into yet another case. The day before Whistleblower Day at the end of July, Daniel Hale was sentenced to 45 months in prison for blowing the whistle on drone atrocities and civilian casualties. Can you talk about Hale's case, Kevin Gostola? Daniel Hale is a Afghanistan war veteran. Just pause for a moment and mention how horrible it is what our U.S. military industrial complex did to Afghanistan for the last 20 years as we're recording it. The Taliban is continuing to take over cities, and it's an absolute nightmare for the people of Afghanistan, the destabilization that we created. And Daniel was deployed there in the early 2010s. He joined because of the poverty draft, as it's known. It was a way to get to college. He didn't have the money to pursue the future he wanted. He didn't join because he was rah-rah, patriot, I want to go bomb something or kill somebody I think is out to get the United States. He joined because it was going to be possibly his only way out of the despair that he had in, in trying to figure out what he was going to do with his life. So he becomes a signals intelligence analyst. He's helping with the geolocation of targets that are on the kill list. And he witnesses the gruesome and grisly nature of drone strikes. He brings that home with him. He has PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, and he's not sure what to do in 2013. He's not certain of, do I want to speak out? How much do I want to speak out? What will I do with my life? But he does join Iraq Vets Against the War, and he speaks at a Code Pink summit, Code Pink, the anti-war group in DC, well-known for their work. And he gets to address relatives of victims of the drone strikes in Yemen. And 
then in 2014, he does take a job. He still has a security clearance. He takes a job with the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency, and he goes to work there. But there's a moment that he has, he wrote about this in the letter to the judge, and he breaks. He can no longer be quiet. He decides to reach out to a reporter because someone at this agency invites him to stay after work and watch archived videos of drone strikes. And it's horrible. It's war porn. He can't take it. So he reaches out to Jeremy Scahill. He was seen in public with Jeremy Scahill. It put a target on his back. He was doing things that are admirable, but it left him vulnerable to the viciousness of this Justice Department. The FBI raided his home the last day of his work as a contractor for the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency. He had provided documents to The Intercept, to Jeremy Scahill, uh, for the drone papers. It was a great series. It was an important series. It revealed more about the war crimes committed, showing that in one five-month span, 90% of the people targeted and killed were civilians and not militants or terrorist suspects. And so this was a big deal. At the time that he did this, Barack Obama was on our TVs lying about the fact that it is required. In order to kill someone, they have to pose an imminent threat. That's not the standard. It's a much, much weaker standard for selecting somebody for assassination. This case was in a state of limbo, much like the Assange case. And the Justice Department actually couldn't find people in the department who would back issuing charges. That's a document that the defense uncovered. I reported on it and made sure people knew that there was this dilemma going on internally. But because they didn't close or shut down the case, the Trump administration was able to dust it off and they indicted Daniel Hale for violations of the Espionage Act about the same time that they indicted Julian Assange for allegedly violating the Espionage Act. So those two political cases are revived by the Trump administration and by the same group of people. In fact, they share the same prosecutor. His name's Gordon Cromberg. He's a very vile person. And so this is what happened. And now he is serving a 45-month prison sentence, far less than what the U.S. had wanted. They wanted to make him so big of an example, increase the chilling effect on whistleblowers and put him in prison for nine years. They didn't get that because he was able to show to the judge that he is a person of conscience And he really doesn't deserve to have the hammer brought down on him. His letter to the judge was riveting, and uh, people really should read it to understand that. And likewise, Shadowproof.com, Kevin Gostola, we're talking to him right now. Um, In my estimation here, our estimation at Project Censored, Kevin Gostola, one of the best independent journalists covering these kinds of issues. We will continue our conversation with Kevin Gostola after this brief musical break. Stay with us. Welcome back to the Project Censored Show on Pacifica Radio. I'm your host, Mickey Huff. In today's program, in this segment, we are joined by Kevin Gostola. He is the managing editor of Shadowproof, also produces and co-hosts the weekly podcast, Unauthorized Disclosure. 
and curates the Dissenter Newsletter. We're talking about all things whistleblowing. So before the break here, Kevin Gostola, we were talking about the case of Daniel Hale. We talked a little about Reality Winner. We began the conversation talking about Julian Assange. You've covered all of these cases, including going all the way back through Chelsea Manning and WikiLeaks. Let's keep going with this conversation and why whistleblowers need protection. And again, a lot of the press attention, Kevin Gostola, and I know you can comment on this, a lot of the attention these cases get really sidesteps the stories that they break, the illegalities that whistleblowers bring to the foreground, and it becomes an attack against them as people, them as disloyal. You already mentioned the Espionage Act. I was wondering if you could comment, given that you do this independent journalism, I'm imagining there's some hand-wringing that goes on because I know you've sat next to people from the corporate media or not because there was an empty chair next to you because they didn't bother to show up. Talk a little bit about the media coverage of these cases and your estimation of the slant, the bias, and the propaganda against whistleblowers in our culture. Going back to Chelsea Manning's case, which was several years ago, I do know from experience that there were people in the establishment press who would approach me and ask questions uh, because they knew that I had such a good grasp of this case and they themselves weren't entirely certain about what they were watching unfold. So I suppose I'm happy because then they don't put out misinformation or they don't totally miss everything that's going on. Um, I didn't check their reports following that to confirm that they had gotten all the right details. But as far as what you're saying, most of the time when you have a whistleblower that is prosecuted, like let's take Daniel Hale, you only see reports when there are milestone events. For example, the person's indicted or the person goes to jail or the person is pleading guilty. The person is sentenced. Uh, the person reports to prison. And that's it. We don't see coverage of preliminary hearings that are of consequence. They likely cover very little of the trial. If there is a trial, a lot of times there aren't because you can't put on a public interest defense under the Espionage Act if you're a whistleblower. And so people don't get to see the way in which this more than 100-year-old law is being utilized by the Justice Department to silence people, many of them who are against war or challenging warfare. And so this is of great importance. And yet CNN, MSNBC, Fox News, New York Times, Washington Post, other ones that we can go down the list and name are not capturing the full extent of the humiliation and punishment that is unfolding in the cases. And again, that's very tragic. And again, people that follow your work at shadowproof.com know this. They learn about the significance of these cases, the details of these cases. Kevin Gostola, we have a few minutes left in our segment. Maybe wanted to come even closer to the present with an unfolding case or maybe unraveling case. That of Governor Andrew Cuomo in New York, that also is a whistleblower case. Can you talk a little bit about what's happening there? People talk about it as like a Me Too story, but the woman who was the first to come forward with sexual harassment allegations, Lindsay Boylan, went on Twitter and she posted, and immediately the executives around Andrew Cuomo heard her allegation and decided they were going to try and discredit her. And they were 
putting together an op-ed. They drafted an editorial that could be put out to respond to her allegations and attack Lindsey Boylan. And it was done with consultants from Time's Up. Uh, Roberta Kaplan has resigned in disgrace from this organization that was part of the, the Me Too movement. And there was someone from Human Rights Campaign who was tarnished by this as well. And I think it just shows to you the problem of this liberal movement around Me Too and how it always has been for the last two or three years about the targets that are politically advantageous for well, the last six to seven months, they knew about this and didn't get him to resign. It took an attorney general doing an investigation, Letitia James, I think she should be praised because her work documented a culture of fear and intimidation at the, his office and, he, and, and showed that not only were sexual harassment victims or survivors afraid to come forward, but anyone with details of corruption, let's say about nursing home deaths, were being silent and not coming forward to say anything because they didn't want to get on the bad side of Andrew Cuomo. And so this is a whistleblower story. And she did a good job on this, investigating it and corroborating all the allegations. She also has taken a stand in support of Amazon workers who have blown the whistle against workplace abuses. So you see a lot of horrid, horrible stuff. And it's nice to know that this is a rare example of a public official who is using her office to do some good for some people who deserve to have their concerns heard. People should read that report if they want to really see what's going on. For example, at CNN, Chris Cuomo was one of the people consulting with his brother while covering these cases, telling him how to handle the case. This violates journalistic ethics. And yet you still have people like Brian Stelter shilling for Cuomo, for Chris Cuomo at CNN. One of the New York City mayoral candidates just said that they should be firing Chris Cuomo. I certainly agree with that not being a proponent of cancel culture, but we're talking about somebody that's violated any journalistic principle that's on the books, Kevin Gostola. It's a violation of ethics. And if he was on air and acting as an advisor of Cuomo, it would be something that he should declare at the top of every single program. But I know that didn't happen. I know he didn't say, I'm helping Andrew Cuomo survive a political scandal and and now welcome to Cuomo primetime or whatever. And so in this case so far, we've seen that the governor has resigned. But given these allegations, given what's in this report from from the attorney general, do you see this going further in terms of criminal charges? Or is this going to be just something that drifts back down the memory hole? I believe that the resignation's the bargaining chip to avoid criminal prosecution, because I don't think that the prosecutors want a liberal governor to be dragged into a trial, especially going into a midterm election year. I'm sad to say that our system is so politicized, but he's a high-ranking official, and most people didn't even think he would be forced to resign. And the scandal around the nursing home deaths is far worse. And also, I think the way he abused his office during the pandemic to boost his image and sell his book is pretty horrid as well. And none of that is going to be anything that leads to a criminal case. So I just think he gets off scot-free. 
and what people should really and truly be focused on going forward is how the Lieutenant Governor, Kathy Hochul, will be as the governor of New York. Is she gonna do anything to repair the way the executive office functions so that the climate of fear and intimidation goes away? Or is she going to use it to her benefit and keep people in line so that they don't go to the press and shell details of corruption? This is a big state, New York. There's so much going on. There's a lot of corruption. And is she going to follow Andrew Cuomo's lead and keep people in check? Well, time will tell, but if past is prologue, we probably won't be holding our breaths on that one. Sad to say. Kevin Gostola, shadowproof.com. Anything else you'd like to share with our listeners or how they can get in touch with you or follow the many things you're doing from the dissenter, prison protest? You have something else on Shadowproof called the Idiocrat. What can you tell our listeners about how to follow your work? I'll just make one final note. If you, if you note anything from our conversation, these are cases we're talking about that stretch on for the last decade. They go through two Democratic presidential administrations and a Republic one, and there's not a whole lot of change and difference in the way they're treated. It does not matter who is in office. That's why I have this dissenter newsletter. I'm telling stories that break away from the partisan nature in which a lot of whistleblower stories are covered. You see in the conservative media echo chamber, they'll pick their own people who they see as whistleblowers I'm thinking about Benghazi, you remember that. And then the progressive left will have their own darlings. I'm thinking of like the Ukraine call whistleblower that they wanted to use to nail Donald Trump. But we don't see support for the people who cross both political parties, who are taking on the system. And that's this dissenter newsletter at the dissenter.org. I do this work. It covers government whistleblowers, corporate whistleblowers, institutional whistleblowers, if there's a labor union, there could be whistleblowers from there. Tells all of these stories that are often ignored by the establishment press. And that is why you are here once again at the Project Censored show. Kevin Gostola, managing editor of Shadowproof, produces and co-hosts the weekly podcast Unauthorized Disclosure, curator of the Dissenter newsletter. Kevin Gostola, invaluable work that you're doing. Thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule to join us again on the Project Censored show. Thank you. Up next on the Project Censored show, we carry on our theme on whistleblowing. We'll be joined by Shahid Batar and Gloria Berry. Stay with us. Welcome back to the Project Censored Show on Pacifica Radio. I'm your host, Mickey Huff. In this segment of the program, we are going to continue our theme of whistleblowing, and we'll talk a little bit more about Daniel Hale, but we'll also talk about national political issues that actually get local to the San Francisco Bay Area. We are joined once again 
by Shahid Batar, certainly no stranger to the program here, an immigrant of Pakistani descent from the United Kingdom, youngest of four children. Shahid grew up in the Midwest and first came to the Bay Area in 2000 to study law at Stanford. He won the primary alongside the incumbent in 2020, making him the only Democrat to have ever faced Nancy Pelosi, Speaker of the House, in general election, and he won over 80,000 votes in the 2020 election. So Shahid Batar, welcome back to the program. Thanks for having me, Mickey. It's always great to be with you. Also joining the program is Gloria Berry, born and raised in San Francisco, a U.S. Navy veteran with 13 years of service. Gloria served as a corrections officer for eight years at San Quentin, where she was promoted to the rank of sergeant. She has also held several other jobs, including recruiter, teacher's aide, Census Bureau partnership department, delivery driver. Ms. Berry, in 2012, was diagnosed with a chronic incurable blood disease, was arrested for possessing marijuana and lost her home, which led her to being homeless for three years. Elected to the San Francisco Democratic County Central Committee in 2020, she's co-chair of the endorsement committee. Gloria is also the founder of Berry Powerful Ladies, that's B-E-R-R-Y, a nonprofit mentorship program and is also a whistleblower herself that is experiencing censorship around some sensitive issues uh, around our broad case uh, that we're going to get into with Shahid Batar today. Gloria Berry, welcome to the Project Censored Show. Thank you for the introduction. I should write a book with what you just said. Funny you say that. You certainly can with the life that you've been living and you have so much to say. So we're going to jump in and get to it so people can hear more from you in this story. But Shahid Batar, let's start with you. You have run an historic campaign against Nancy Pelosi. We got some updates from you, but it's been a real uphill battle. And there also has been an extraordinary smear campaign against you. So, Shahid, please give us an update about what's happening with you. Sure. Well, last year, I became the first Democrat to ever face the sitting Speaker of the House in a November election. And we won 81,000 votes, more than any campaign she's ever faced, after forcing half a dozen policy concessions in spite of a pandemic, in spite of a corporate media whiteout, and particularly what you're addressing here is a character assassination campaign that was mounted by Democratic Party operatives, several of whom I had hired at one point and then replaced after we won the top two primary. And the press in San Francisco indulged a series of fabrications in, frankly, patterns straight out of the South and you know, accusations without any evidence or specificity that kept changing by people with conflicts of interest who were then rewarded for their lies, printed by multiple newspapers who still a year later, even after the exposure of these lies, conspicuously declined to correct their inaccurate, unethical, racist stories. Can you talk about some of the specifics? I know in one in, in particular, you have a case going on with the San Francisco Chronicle about this. Could you mention any of the specifics that might be involved? Sure. So the Chronicle suit is a defamation lawsuit. It ultimately aims to defend the democratic process and press ethics from the publication of weaponized fabrications. Last year in July, I was accused on my birthday of having uh, sexually harassed someone 20 years ago. And the claim was brought to the press by people who I'd replaced on my campaign team. It was uh, an accusation by someone with a long history of accusing anti-war candidates of sexual harassment, someone who had long accused me of a whole series of other things alongside an entire network of people in Washington, all peace activists, including an 80-year-old who 
started the anti-nuclear vigil at the White House that was going on since 1981. She was one of the people who was accused by this same person. And all these prior histories of accusations were known to the press. They were known to my critics. I couldn't talk about it because I was the person accused. And I just kept waiting for the press to cover the story. The first several weeks I was being smeared, maybe the first two weeks, I should say, it set in after about that. I was very confident that this was all going to blow over because I was confident that the press would report the facts. I had some confidence, some faith, perhaps, in press ethics that ultimately was mislaid. And it did take two months for The Intercept to ultimately debunk the original accusation of harassment, which was completely fabricated. That original accusation was inflated by my former campaign manager into sexual assault, which she wrote and then acknowledged two months later, the first time anyone asked her that it was a quote mistake, which is to say false. And somehow the story of racist false accusation by Democratic Party operatives kneecapping an immigrant candidate to protect the Speaker of the House from the objectively strongest challenge that she has ever faced was not the headline. (laughs) And a great many people in San Francisco remain quite confused about not only what happened last year, but also particularly the role of many grassroots groups vis-a-vis their own stated principles and memberships. You know, we saw the leaderships of more or less every left-leaning political organization in San Francisco co-opt their own organizations against their own members and principles. And I think that's ultimately one of the deeper stories here. But, you know, I'd love to get Gloria's voice in and just to share a little bit of what she observed and what she also experienced. Absolutely. And that's exactly where we're going next. Gloria, Gloria Berry, please weigh in here. The sad part is I risk explaining what's going on because it just sounds so silly and mean girlish and and all that type. But to bring my part in this, what happened is I actually received a phone call from Shahid's financial manager. And she told me she had been crying all night. And I was like, what's wrong? And she repeated some of these false accusations that were brought against Shahid Batar. And on the onset, it, it smelled fishy. It just didn't sound right. So I, I wasn't sold when, when she contacted me. And I right away felt like I need to see what's going on with this. Shahid Batar endorsed me. I, when I was running for the Democratic Party here in San Francisco, I endorsed him. He seemed like a pleasant man, you know, to work with and someone I was very excited to support. And I needed to get to the bottom of it. So I I then went and called another person. And she was a member of the San Francisco chapter of the Democratic Socialists of America. And she repeated the same script as this first woman, Emily Jones, who made the first call. And both of them used what I like to call dog whistles. They said things like, well, you know, Gloria Shahid has a friend that's Black. For me, it's like, did y'all forget I'm Afro-Latina? Like, is that supposed to put fear in me? And oh, well, Shahid must have did something terrible if he has a friend that's Black. And it said things like, you know, how he dressed, his hair. And it was just like, that's what y'all did to me. You complained about my hair. They said I shouldn't wear it curly. I should wear it straight. I should always have a blazer on. And it's the exact same situation. So... None of what they said was convincing. It just seemed like they didn't like him personally. And then after that, I I read the accusers 
tweet and it was like, what are these people doing? And, and one part I haven't been mentioning is that they both knew that an article was coming out. These, these two people who were just happened to be in a political club, they knew an article was coming out that compiled on to the, the fish I smelled just it just I, I could tell this was something being done to smear this man. And then the reason why I jumped in on this and really cared about it also is because he was between a rock and a hard place. How does a man in 2020 defend himself against people who use the Me Too hashtag? How do they not put their foot in their mouth and defend themselves at the same time? So I took it upon myself to get involved, to go to the clubs and explain a lot of what was being said and point out inconsistencies. And I was foolish enough to believe that people already involved would sway in front of the public. GloriaBerry.substack.com if people want to learn more of the details. So your introduction to this it sounds like some high school soap opera drama. What's the substance of any of this? What have you found out about any of this? I found out that this is an organized technique. It's something I've seen before. The power of his accuser and his campaign manager are both white women. So the ability for them to say whatever claim they want to is not questioned immediately. If they say it or tweet it, it must be true. Again, another white woman told me directly that I was gonna go down, that I was gonna go down for supporting Shahid and what she did not know wasn't so much about him, it was the, me supporting the truth. Shahid Batar, in what way is this, do you think then connected, if at all, your campaign against the Speaker of the House, against the Democratic Party machinery. What do you think are these? Do you think there are connections here? And if so, what are they? Oh, of course. Yeah. So the DCCC blacklist is the most concrete connection. So this was the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee in 2020 announced a rule at the behest of Nancy Pelosi that any staff or contractors who worked with people like me, challengers to entrenched incumbents, rendered themselves ineligible to do other work with the party or other campaigns or PACs or party organizations. So it set up a really pernicious incentive for people who had worked for people like me, who no longer worked for people like me, who might want opportunities in the party to lie about people like me. And this happened across the country. It happened to Hassan Leckie in Boston. It happened to Alex Morris in Western Massachusetts. It happened to Nina Turner in Ohio last week. It happened to me. This is a tool in the toolbox of the corporate Democratic Party to defend itself against actual Democratic challengers from grassroots candidates standing for visionary policies that would protect our communities from the failures of the past. And I certainly don't think I would have been smeared if I was just a random Muslim immigrant going about my business, right? I mean, the reason I was smeared is because I was challenging power. And it's interesting also just to put on the table, many of the people who invented and fabricated and orchestrated and spread these lies about me were rewarded by the party establishment. Several of them were appointed to the board of directors of an organization that endorsed Pelosi in the general election. That's the Harvey Milk LGBTQ Democratic Club. And the irony there just 
it's so deep and so far as I was one of the first courtroom advocates for marriage equality for LGBTQ couples in the country. And the LGBTQ club in San Francisco that claims the name of Harvey Milk, the first openly gay legislator in the country, endorsed Pelosi and then appointed to its board two different people who smeared me. I mean, it is preposterous like to drag Harvey Milk's name into this and through the mud in the service of their own craven careerism is to me revolting ultimately. And as someone who stood for gay rights when they weren't popular to see gay activists seeking careers in the Democratic Party put themselves in their careers before the movement and their own memberships and their own stated principles, it is more than a little disappointing. I'll put it that way. You know, the pattern of lies and obfuscation, ultimately people like me and candidates, we might be the subjects of these lies, but I was not the target. The target ultimately were the voters of my district. And one reason I'm speaking out and one reason I'm grateful to Gloria for standing up in the face of this orchestration of fabrication is that we are ultimately defending democracy from the corruption of a local political establishment that seems unfortunately all too willing to leverage some really disgusting, unfortunate tactics with a history entirely too well established in our country. I'd like to remind our listeners you're tuned to the Project Censored Show on Pacifica Radio. We're speaking with Shahid Batar and Gloria Berry, and we'll be talking more about whistleblowing and more national politics after this brief musical break. Stay with us. Welcome back to the Project Censored Show on Pacifica Radio. I'm your host, Mickey Huff. In this segment of the program, we're speaking with Shahid Batar, who ran against incumbent Nancy Pelosi, the Speaker of the House, getting over 80,000 votes. Shahid Batar has been the target of what he says is a smear campaign, not just against him, but against challengers, progressive challengers to the neoliberal Democratic Party establishment across the country, not just in San Francisco. We're also joined by Gloria Berry, who blew the whistle on some of the people who were involved and behind some of these campaigns. And Gloria is also a member of the San Francisco DCCC that we talked about before. Gloria Berry, I wanted to come back to you briefly, given that you have this status in the Democratic Party. What has your experience been inside? You've been speaking up about this issue. How has this been received? That's a great question. Actually, no one has discussed this matter with me. Not one person has reached out locally. In the actual political clubs, the response has not been great, but in the Democratic body itself, the San Francisco DCCC, I haven't had anyone reach out. And let's be clear, there's two accusations. There's one of the sexual assault, and then there's another one of being a toxic male. On the sexual assault side, which is the worst, I can't find one of them that one-on-one will say they find that claim credible at this point as individuals, not one. I've talked to several, and that's interesting. So, Gloria, it's also the case that you're working to establish laws to prohibit false reports to law enforcement. Could you talk a little bit about these types of efforts and and their relationship? Actually, uh, President of the Board of Supervisors, Shaman Walton, wrote the ordinance. What I did was support it 
through a resolution through the Democratic Party and it did pass. And from my own experience, the police have been called on me four times by white women. So that's why it's kind of personal. You know, I know what can happen. The initial claim was that Mr. Batar assaulted a woman. That's a criminal thing to say about a person. And it's horrible that no one finds that credible at this point. But when Mr. Batar's name is mentioned through social media, people who don't know the details on this matter will reference that. I would go deeper than that, if I may. I mean, and I appreciate that. The network that smeared me remains quite active today, and they're smearing Gloria too. And I, I would love for you, Gloria, to share your own experience in terms of the, the threats that you received. Did you feel in any way welcomed when you came forward? And if you didn't, what happened to you when you brought your story forward or when you published your petition? What was your experience then? I'm not sure if I mentioned it earlier, but I did a petition on change.org and it received over 500 signatures. And I mentioned one of the people that said I was going to go down with the ship if I supported Shahid. Her name is Jackie Thornhill. And she was at the time a legislative aide for Sandra Fewer, who was a supervisor here in San Francisco. And she bullied me so much, I had to eventually tell her to stop communicating with me. And in that petition, I mentioned her name. So when my petition got hacked and my password changed and all that, they send you a notification that your password was changed. I would go back into the petition and that one sentence about her was removed. And then I put the sentence back in. I changed my password and put it back out there and it happened again. And then finally, they just totally removed it online, period, the whole petition. And in case our listeners are wondering how this came to our attention at Project Censored, it's that neither Shahid nor Gloria have been able to get a platform to discuss any of the things that have been happening. So in effect, their side of the story has basically been blacked out. Our role here at the project isn't to take a side one way or the other or be judge or jury. Our point is that given that this was a pretty high-profile race with the Speaker of the House, and as Shahid Batar said earlier, there are similarities in patterns in other states of candidates of color being smeared for various reasons, we thought that we wanted to try to at least hear what was happening and get some of this story out to the public so other people could go and look at the details. That's what we are trying to do here today. Shahid Batar, I want to come back to you and I want to shift gears a little bit away from this particular case and then we'll come back. I would be remiss if I didn't take this opportunity to ask you, given your background, formerly with Electronic Frontier Foundation, also Defending Rights and Dissent, you have a long history in law and activism fighting for civil rights, civil liberties in particular one of the most active folks after 9-11 opposing the Patriot Act, been a longtime supporter of whistleblowers. And of course, recently, we were talking earlier to Kevin Gostola from shadowproof.com about a bunch of high-profile whistleblower cases. Daniel Hale was just sentenced to 45 months in prison. In fact, he was sentenced on the day before National Whistleblowers Day. You can't make that up. For blowing the whistle on drone strikes, killing 90% civilians and the Pentagon and others just simply trying to brush it aside. So again, Shahid, you have had a long 
standing position against both Republican and Democratic Party war policies, which makes you a clear target, as well as someone that's now run, you know, that has consistently been running to raise that kind of awareness by challenging the Speaker of the House in local elections. And that's been a big part of your campaign, is trying to really rectify the military-industrial complex stranglehold over Democratic Party leadership. There is no anti-war party. And this is a real issue. Could you talk a little bit about the Hale case and your thoughts about that, given your background? Sure. Daniel Hale is the latest in a long line of conscientious Americans who basically are the messengers being shot for coming forward with the truth. And instead of holding our military industrial complex accountable, instead of holding our legal apparatus accountable for allowing the effectively arbitrary and random assassination of people by robotic remote video game interfaces, it's unconscionable. And it's the same pattern, frankly, that we've seen going all the way back to Daniel Ellsberg, from Ellsberg to Snowden to Bill Binney. We consistently shoot the messengers. That's what our country does. Daniel Hell and other things shared with the court that he felt compelled to come forward with the truth because he knew the public didn't know. And when we stand for whistleblowers, what we are ultimately standing for is democracy. It is a question. They present the question. They are the rubber hitting the road as to whether we live in a government for up and by the people, or instead we are merely subjects to be used and taken advantage of and for our resources to be claimed by an unaccountable apparatus that will slaughter people around the world. And Daniel was trying to let us know how our resources were being used. And that's a vital public function. Any sincere public servant must stand with whistleblowers because whistleblowers are the people who expose corruption. When you see public policymakers standing with agencies and establishments against whistleblowers, and I want to make that really sharp, Nancy Pelosi vilifies Edward Snowden as an international criminal. When you see that happen, those are policymakers who either do not understand or are openly violating their own oaths of office to stand and defend our constitution against all enemies, foreign and domestic, means, among other things, that you have to support the truth when people try to bring it forward. And when you don't, it suggests that the allegiances might be to something other than we the people of the United States. And last thing I'll say here is I'm sort of like a walking embodiment of the crimes of our military industrial complex. The reason I am an American is because my family was effectively chased out of our native country by a military dictator supported by the Pentagon. And that's been the pattern around the world for 70 years. And I have the extraordinary privilege of having been, as an immigrant, raised in the United States. I've had remarkable fortunes with respect to my educational opportunities. And I've dedicated myself to trying to hold accountable this machine that I want to be clear here, we were warned as a people about when it was founded by its architect, the last speech that the victorious Allied commander in the Second World War gave after serving as a U.S. president, after building the interstate highway system, he warned us that this would happen, that our rights and liberties and democracy in America would be destroyed by the combination of security and profit. He said, only if we are knowledgeable and alert will we be able to retain our freedoms. And we, unfortunately, thanks to the press, have been, frankly, neither. And one reason I'm running for, I ran for office, and one reason I'm eager to finish the job is to to do that work of defending the Constitution, not just in the abstract against the executive branch, but at the moment, particularly against a leader of a congressional branch, who from one context to the next has been entirely complicit 
in this ongoing assault on our Constitution. Just to be clear, you are referring to Dwight Eisenhower's farewell address from 60 years ago now, that's and right. that's plenty of time for warnings that we've seen along the way. And also to be clear to the audience, Shahid Batar is not running for office. We are not talking about Shahid as a current candidate for any office. Gloria Barry, we have a few minutes left. I wanted to bring you back into the conversation and where you may turn next as a whistleblower in some of the issues we were talking previously. I don't have a career in whistleblowing, but I definitely don't mind telling the truth. I'm not a ladder climber, so I think that gives me a lot of freedom. I'm an activist at heart. I couldn't believe I got elected to the DCCC with no support from moderates or progressives. And I just want to do what I do. Um, I'm working on a resolution, Senate Bill 826, where one woman has to be on a board throughout the state of California. And looks like only about 50% corporations are in compliance and they have until December. And the next year, they're supposed to put at least one marginalized person on their board. So that that's going to be interesting to follow. So I do stuff like that, you know. And other than that, I support Shahid and his endeavors. And hey, I, I have a lot going on. These people who think I'm going down because I wanted to speak the truth, it it it, it goes right off my shoulder because um, they're clueless to think that I got involved because I have some hopes of getting somewhere in life when all I wanted to do was tell the truth. It's been an honor to have you on the program here today. And Shahid Batar, in the couple minutes that we have left in the program, what are the next steps for you with your current case? As we mentioned earlier, I think you do have something going on with the San Francisco Chronicle in particular. Can you give us a quick update? We have this defamation case against the Chronicle. And before we get to the merits, there will likely be an exchange of motions. We're looking forward to that subsequent process. While we're trying to seek from the courts a resolution of the Chronicle's abdication of its press ethics, we are also in the court of public opinion, hoping to encourage the other journalists that wrote unethical, inaccurate stories to correct theirs. And just to name the names to you know, help ensure that accountability, Joe Garofoli at the San Francisco Chronicle was the lead writer who wrote these completely indefensible, unsourced, not just defamatory stories, but we're talking about election disinformation published by a newspaper of record. That was Joe Garofoli at the Chronicle. Joe Eskenazi at Mission Local, in whose journalism, you know, I'd had some respect before. I was really disappointed to see him silence whistleblowers. He got an 18-page memo about the litany of factual errors in his piece, and his response was a one-line response, something to the effect of good day, sir, if I recall correctly. Tim Redmond at 48 Hills, he was the former editor of the SF Bay Guardian when it was in print. And I, I, I was a reader of the SF Bay Guardian for years, and it amazes me to see him taking his direction as talking points from Democratic Party actors. And then finally, Akella Lacey at The Intercept is the journalist by whom I have probably been the most, I don't want to say disappointed, just astounded. It amazes me that that complete abdication of any journalistic ethics can fly at an outlet that prides itself on investigation. I frankly don't expect much from the local journalists, but The Intercept is, you know, an investigative outlet. And, you know, they've revised their story four different times. They, they published a hit piece and then keep revising it after the point of publication. And ultimately, they did establish that campaign operatives were smearing me with racist lies. And the deference to the Democratic Party 
by an outlet like The Intercept in whose policy reporting they tend to show independence, but then in their political reporting, it's so conspicuously absent. You know, that's uh, a, a locus of accountability that I invite. And frankly, while candidates can press issues and advance issues in the public sphere, we are entirely reliant on readers to demand ethical journalism. And I invite any readers who read The Chronicle or Mission Local or 48 Hills or the Bay Area Reporter or The Intercept to make known to their editors that they would like to see whistleblowers and evidence covered instead of false accusations peddled by Democratic Party operatives to mislead voters and undermine election integrity. Well, Shahid Batar, thank you for joining us today on the Project Censored show to take this opportunity to get this angle of the story out that doesn't seem to be it's hard to find, right? And as you said, it's it's hard for for um, it's hard to hear through through some of the noise that's going on, and perhaps the case you're involved, uh, the legal case you're involved in, will help clarify some of that and uh, get the record straight. Shahid Batar, where can folks get a hold of you? We're online at shahidforchange.us or on any of the social media platforms at shahidforchange. Thanks again for joining us today on the Project Censored Show. Gloria Berry, thank you so much for joining us today and sharing your story with us. And you can read the story from Gloria Berry at gloriaberry.substack.com on white supremacy in San Francisco. You've been listening to the Project Censored show on Pacifica Radio, established in 2010 by myself and Peter Phillips. I'm Mickey Huff, the executive producer and host of the program. Anthony Fest is our longtime senior producer. The Project Censored show airs on roughly 50 stations around the United States from Maui to New York. To learn more about our work or find any of our previous archive programs, go to projectcensored.org. Please follow and like us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and be sure to subscribe to the official Project Censored show on your cell phone's podcast application. Please feel free to share your feedback about our work at projectcensored.org. And last but not least, thanks to you, our listeners, for tuning in. Stay well. We'll see you next time. Think about crimes perpetrated by the criminal minds, political ties, habitualized alibis, skies and other guys, democracy, politics, and the apocalypse. Got the skies like an ominous. So the ocean burned bright with waves full of poison. Genocide, wars, fall for little poison. The weapons manufactured pay for our attacks on all the bridges and the levees and the mines collapsing. All the prisons, those are capacity citizens. And the times for the master thief. Combine and conquer, steal a masterpiece. Open your eyes and realize what's happening. Times running out the reach, all potential fame at the table, then you probably on the menu. Oh,